We're talking wealth this week on The Takeaway, so let's do some pretty easy math here. If you're white and living in the Boston area, the median net worth for your household is just over $247,000. And if you're black? $8. That's not 80, that's not 800, that's $8. $8, are you shaking your head? I sure am. That's William Darity, who goes by Sandy, and he's the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He studied this with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. The racial wealth gap is a persistent problem and has barely changed over time, not just in Boston, but across the entire United States, where for every dollar a white family has, a black family holds just five to ten cents. Black households where the head has a college degree at the median have less wealth than white households where the head has never finished high school. I spoke with Sandy Darity about the racial wealth gap and how decisions and policies made over 200 years ago continue to affect us today. We just released a report called What We Get Wrong About Closing the Racial Wealth Gap. And the motivation for that report was to address the perception that many, many people in America have, the perception that the reason why black people have so little wealth must be attributable to certain kinds of behavioral deficiencies, bad judgment, ignorance about finances, and the like. And we released this report to demonstrate that that perception is absolutely wrong. The fundamental reason we have these huge disparities is because previous generations of African Americans have not had the capacity to bestow the same levels of resources on their children and grandchildren that previous generations of white Americans have been able to do. And we have to actually go back and look at the whole historical process of how black Americans have been deprived or denied the opportunity to accumulate any significant amount of wealth over the course of almost two centuries. And, and I would argue that the starting point is really the failure of the federal government to provide the promised 40 acres and a mule to the formerly enslaved black folks in the aftermath of the Civil War. That's the beginning of this huge gulf in wealth uh, that exists in American society. And that's a critical point. I wonder if we could touch on some of the other major historical markers um, in addition to the federal government's failure to actually make good on the promise of 40 acres and a mule. What happened after that in subsequent decades that really led to this gap? So there were a number of forks in the road uh, in black wealth accumulation where the society took the wrong fork. So the first is the failure to provide 40 acres and a mule. The second is the, is the wave of violent white massacres that took place throughout the United States between the period of Reconstruction, largely up, up until about 1950, that led to mass amounts of black land loss, property loss, and life loss. But there was a host of these. There was a wave of them in the state of Florida, and in the case of the, the, uh, the town of Ocoee, Florida, 500 black residents disappeared virtually overnight, and the disappearance was attributable to the murder of some and to the uh, forced exile of others. And subsequent to that disappearance, the property that was possessed by those black families and households 
was taken over and reappropriated uh, by a, uh, a tribunal that was established by the white residents of Ocoee. Uh, and that's just an example of the way in which these waves of violence were used for the purposes of denying black accumulation of wealth. To compound that, we can, we can also associate the lynching trail throughout the South as a trail of property appropriation by whites. Uh, and so that goes hand in hand with this process. In addition, if we look at the post-World War II policies that promoted social mobility in the United States, those policies were heavily racialized, so they disproportionately benefited white Americans. And I'm including here the effects and consequences of the GI Bill, the introduction of various forms of home mortgage subsidies that were provided by the federal government, the way in which these programs were administered uh, largely denied blacks who otherwise would have been eligible for these types of supports from receiving them and, uh, and largely bestowed those kinds of opportunities on white Americans. So actually, we could argue that there's a host of social policies that have been pursued in the United States or not pursued, as in the case of the failed allocation of 40 acres and a mule that have resulted in the conditions that we observe today, where uh, older generations of black Americans simply do not have the kinds of resources that older generations of white Americans have. I'm speaking with Sandy Darity, director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University, and we're talking about the racial wealth gap in the United States. I'm also wondering, we know that uh, the racial wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans is the largest. But what about Latino Americans, Asian Americans? What trends do we see there? So uh, with respect to Latinos, the kinds of disparities that we're describing are quite similar. Maybe slightly smaller, but very similar. Maybe at best, Latinos have about 12 cents to the dollar of net worth at the median. Uh, in comparison with whites. On the other hand, with respect to Asian Americans, we have uh, a, a somewhat different situation, and it depends largely upon which Asian American national origin community we're talking about. So uh, in our cross-city study, we found, for example, that Koreans who are located in Washington, D.C., have a relatively high median net worth. But Koreans who live in Los Angeles are actually among the segments of the population with a comparatively lower median net worth. So there's a variation within national origin groups depending upon where they're located geographically. This is a really complicated issue with a very complicated and historical, long historical past. Um, in fact, I've seen data that says it's going to take more than 200 years to close the gap between white and black Americans. Actually, I'd, I'd like to, sure. to, to make a mild correction on that. That study doesn't say that it will take 200-some years to close the gap. What that study says is it will take more than 200 years, given current trends, for blacks to attain the level of wealth that whites currently have. That's an important distinction, and you've actually looked at ways to move that along more quickly, right? What are some of the solutions you think or you're, you're suggesting? 
if we are thinking about a direct attack on the racial wealth gap, then we do need a program that would be the equivalent of a reparations initiative. Uh, We would need a program that actively transferred a significant amount of resources to the black American community as a wealth building strategy. And I would actually argue that the magnitude of the reparations program should be anchored on the size of the racial wealth gap. Uh, So I would take the racial wealth gap and I would measure that and then I would compute what the magnitude of a, of a reparations bill should be on the basis of that disparity or that difference. But there's another possible program that doesn't necessarily have to be an alternative. It could be a complement to this program. And it's a proposal that Derek Hamilton and I have talked about that we refer to the baby bonds proposal. Now, to be clear, this is not actually a bond Rather, it's a diversified portfolio that functions as a trust fund for each newborn infant in the United States. So unlike the reparations program, this would be a universal program. It would be applicable to all newborn infants who are born in the United States. And here the idea is that the amount of the trust fund would be graduated on the basis of the wealth position of the child's family. So, for example, uh, children who are born into the wealthiest families in the United States, because we want this to be a universal program, we would give them a token trust fund of about $50. Uh, For children who are born into the nation's poorest families with respect to their wealth position, we would give them $50,000 to $60,000 in a trust fund. And we would ensure that these trust funds received a real rate of interest of 1% per annum, at least. They would get an instrument that they could use to build assets over the course of their entire adult lifetime. And this would really reshape the range of opportunities that are available to all Americans. And this is a problem that's been around for longer than you and I have been around. Um, The question I have is why has the federal government not address this in a more significant, uh, impactful way. Uh, I I was going to say this current administration may not seem to have any openness to solving the problem, but I don't know if I've seen prior administrations really interested in, in closing the racial wealth gap in particular. I don't think that there was ever any significant political pressure placed upon either of the political parties aimed at trying to address the racial wealth gap. And I think that that's, that's the critical factor that would have to come into play. There would have to be a social movement that created that kind of political pressure to bring about the adoption of proposals of this type. And I, I'm hoping that as we have more extensive and reasoned conversations about why the racial wealth gap exists, it will lead to uh, a greater degree of enthusiasm for programs that would really correct the problem. William Darity is a public policy professor and director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Sandy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And you're telling us about your wealth. My name is Scott Johnson. I live in Ada, Oklahoma, and I survive on less than $1,000 a month for disability. I get help from the Chickasaw Nation on things that I can't get. 
only get to eat once a day, and if I had more than that money, I wouldn't know what to do with it. It's Jane calling from San Francisco. Net worth, 150K. The GI Bill allowed me to get a master's degree. And then with marketable skills, I worked six days a week for two years, saving enough to buy a business for my husband. Now our future looks more secure. But we're still collecting stories about wealth, particularly if you are a black or brown American or you a person of color. Call us with your story at 877-8-MY-TAKE.